Welcome to Guitar Villains. I'm your host, Tyler Larson. Why guitar villains, you ask? Because villains are cooler than heroes. It's just a fact. This is a podcast by guitar players for guitar players, and throughout this series, we will talk to some of the most innovative and creative minds in the guitar community, find out what makes them tick, and find out how we can become better guitar players ourselves. Thank you for watching the video podcast here on YouTube, and you can also listen to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Today's guitar villain is Corey Wong. A groove master with a pocket deeper than Warren Buffett's, Corey is one of the leading forces in the world of funk and is an equally competent arranger, producer, and tone aficionado. From his awesome playing in the cult band that is Wolfpack to his solo music, which just featured friend of the podcast Joe Satriani, Corey has made a name for himself through his rhythmic artistry and attention to detail as a musician. Corey's also very familiar with podcasts as he has his own podcast called Wong Notes, so you know the two of us are going to be right at home on this episode of Guitar Villains. Welcome to Guitar Villains, the show where we deconstruct and decode the guitar. And Corey, I think you're the only person I've ever heard describe to an audience that they are at a Warrior One level of public behavior. (laughs) (laughs) I like to bring in analogies when it comes to live performance and public behavior, social situations. I'd say right now I'm chilling. I'm chilling just like half shavasana chilling right now i'm uh you're like slightly (laughs) child's pose (laughs) yeah 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 i don't remember what they call it but basically you know like everybody else i've been in lockdown for six months but i um decided that we needed to get out of the house and we live in minnesota so it's cold there already yeah. So we wanted to extend our summer by a month. So I'm down in Arizona. We packed up, came down to Arizona. I found a nice, affordable place to rent for a month. Mm-hmm. And it's good because now my kids can all have their own room. Uh, they, don't, they share a room at our house. So, you know, we just needed a little more space and just a different environment to be in for a little bit. And... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm fortunate that it's it's working out for us to be able to do this. So, yeah. So that was that was live at First Avenue on Corey's Corey's YouTube channel. If you'd like to hear that little spiel, but that's right. <laughs> how did you How did you come up with that? Is that just do you do yoga, or were you just uh, preparing to to tell the crowd what what they need to expect? Two things. One, I do yoga. Number two, I think the ultimate warrior is hilarious. <laughs> that character and that guy. Yeah. Uh, it is hilarious to me that that was on TV, that these guys were, I mean, I don't know what they were doing back in the day, no. professional wrestling, but I was thinking about warrior poses in yoga and what would the ultimate warrior pose be in yoga. And then I was thinking about like, the ultimate warrior himself doing yoga as part of his WWE workout routine. And I thought that would, that, it was a funny image. Yeah. And Just you had the image, that. you had the image That's behind you. <laughs> that was cool. Yeah. Um, so the show is called guitar villains. We do things a little bit differently on the show. We're going to play some games. I'm going to try and get to the bottom of what makes you tick as a musician and Hopefully you'll have a great time, and next time you're coming through Nashville, maybe on a tour, fingers crossed, and we can yeah. get together and do this again. So I think villains are cooler than heroes. I've always found the characters are deeper and more memorable. So the first thing I want to ask is, out of all the movie or comic book villains out there, who would you say you identify with the most? This could be as simple mm. as appearance or as nuanced as a character trait you share. Sure. If you want, I'll give you my um, answer first for which villain I think you're most like. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm just not a villains guy. That's why it's interesting for me to be here with you. I'm, I'm not, I'm not villains guy, you know. Yeah. Well, you, um, you say that, but 
but a couple a couple co- things. Come at me. Come at me. What villain do you think I am most like? Okay. Well, I'm going to leave the, the striped shirt thing alone. And I don't think Beetlejuice is even a villain. But you share that Ooh, resemblance uh, yeah. with, as far as the, the appearance goes. But I think your supervillain doppelganger is the Joker. And let me tell you, this is high praise. Heavy. So, as we know, the Joker is cunning, strategic, charming. And a man of many talents. He's the ultimate example of the guy who can both flip the burgers and run the company. And now which version of jo- the Joker you are is a toss-up. I think it would be Jack Nicholson's interpretation, the original Batman from 1989 with Michael Keaton. Because of he it just seems like a great fit considering great he... Great soundtrack. He gets down to Prince Great in that. soundtrack. Yeah. So... I think you would get down to Prince, uh, of course, and you're also clearly a mastermind on your instrument, but you're also a band leader, a producer, and seem like you can do it all, but the whole time you're smiling. I like that. I like that. You know, <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that. The Joker character is pretty heavy, though. Right. Uh, it's a lot of weight to, a lot of weight to carry. Um, but I like the answer. You know, honestly, what I was first thinking of, my first answer I was going to go for, I have to ask if it's a villain, though, first. Okay. Is Willy Wonka a villain? Hmm. Depends what stage you're watching the movie in your life. Exactly, right? Yeah. So, Willy Wonka is a creative mind. He can also operate a business. He expects the best out of people, but he demands the best out of himself mm. more than anything. Indeed. I would say that's a fit. I mean, there's no wrong answer here. This is more about yeah, yeah, yeah. examining. I'm going to go with Willy Wonka. Okay, Willy Wonka. I like that. That's great. Yeah, I, and he has some kind of devious stares. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't seem quite pure, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, 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 like, I like Willy Wonka. But we're going to go with that one. Great. So first things first, I have a couple softball lobs for you. I call this segment Burning Questions. I like the fire sound effect. Yes. High, I like that. High production quality on this podcast. Uh, if you were to conduct a live master class or a live stream where anybody could ask you any questions about anything they want regarding music these are the questions they would ask instead of asking you about guitar playing secrets and wisdom or anything else that could help them become a better player. They would no doubt spam you with these questions, which don't totally matter, but must be answered. Are you ready? Come at me. All right. What gauge pick do you use? No idea. <laughs> um, it's the Dava medium. Dava I don't medium. know what gauge it is. They're kind of these weird picks. That I don't have one in any of my pockets right now. Um, they have like a rubber grip and a plastic tip. I think I've played one of those, yeah. They're weird for most people, but they work for me. I change my grip a little bit whether I'm doing single note strumming or whether I'm doing the rhythm thing. Mm-hmm. Um, normally, I would use, what is that, Gray Dunlop, the 73 73 Dunlop 73 the dark the dark gray I would use that for the just regular rhythm picking thing but I right. if I were to do single note stuff I'd use something a lot thicker but this Dava pick kind of gets me the in between depending on where I grip on the pick Okay great what gauge strings do you use Tens What's your number 1 guitar my blue Highway 1 Stratocaster. I have two of them that are almost identical. Um, they're both number one in my heart. You tell the difference when you pick them up blindfolded? Yes. Great. What's your number one amp? Or your favorite amp? The Corey Wong Archetype plug-in, of course. I thought you might say that. 
I, and, and within that, I like the clean machine the best. I think everybody else likes the amp snob better, mm. but I like the clean machine for my thing. They're both amazing. I mean, they're all, all three of them are amazing, but uh, Desert Island clean machine. Yeah, delightful, delightful plug in there. What's your favorite guitar pedal? The Wampler Ego Compressor. As of now, that's my favorite favorite pedal. Kind of not a fun answer because it's a compressor, but it's also like really a fun answer because it's a compressor. <laughs> One of my favorite named pedals too, the Ego Compressor. Yes. Great. Yeah. Brian, Brian's a mastermind with that. Although yeah. I think he doesn't do any of the marketing. He's, I think he once told me if it were up to him, there would be no color and no names. It would just be the pedal in the box. So maybe we'll shout out his marketing department. I like that. I like that. <laughs> All right, I want to play a little game called Name Those Notes. The concept is pretty simple. I'm going to play you a quick sequence of guitar notes from songs you've recorded over the years. And you have to tell me what song these notes come from. I like that. This is going to be interesting because... Hopefully I know my own catalog well enough. Yes, we're going to see how well you know your catalog and how well you can recognize your guitar playing. <laughs> and it'll spur some conversation about the music too. So we're going to start with something that I think you'll get that might be pretty easy. And then we will get progressively harder. Does that sound good? That sounds great. I'm going to okay. turn up here a little bit. Yeah, let me hear it. Here we go. That is F, C, E flat. Name those notes. <laughs> <laughs> that is Corey Wong, a Wolfpack song. And it's actually, do you know where that recording is from, where it's taking place? That's a bonus, bonus question. Uh, play it one more time. I don't know if you, if you can identify audience clapping, but yeah, let's just I mean, say my it's a, first it's guess a large would just room. Be that it's... My first guess would be Madison Square Garden because that's where the live album is from. That's it. Yeah, it sounds like that crowd. Sounds indoors, but big. Yes. So that would be my guess. A truly epic. Yes! An epic guitar moment for you there. Just got that. Oh, so much fun. Uh, You have this this delightful, uh, like, funky precision to your playing. It's kind of loose and tight at the same time. Yeah. And as a guitar player watching you, uh, I know you have to wield a certain level of flexibility to do what you do, tie in the little yeah. yo- yoga element maybe, uh, especially in the picking hand. But I yeah. think the misconception, and tell me if I'm wrong here, I think the misconception a lot of people have is that they look at the shiny object and forget about sure. everything else, and in this case the shiny object being the picking hand. But I yeah. think at least some or maybe more of the work to achieve your sound is actually happening in the fretting hand because of the muting yeah there's a lot of nuance see to me the right hand is the motor mm-hmm. but the nuance all comes from the left hand which strings i'm pressing down how hard i'm pressing on them mm-hmm. basically whether i'm actually sounding out or if it's just a chuck mm-hmm. and then also sometimes almost pressing it down enough to make a sound so it sounds a little more choked out. There's a lot of nuance in the left hand. And yeah, in the muting and that sort of thing, and how many notes are actually being let through the door versus choked up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like ghost um, notes almost. So, yeah. And so the left hand has, to me, equal the amount of work, but the right hand is just the motor that's churning the stuff out. Awesome. Got another group of notes for you. Ready? Yeah. Here we go. Uh, my guess is that that is 1612 live at Sirius XM. You've done it again. You're two for two. Yes! <laughs> Why is it that funk, more than any genre, can <laughs> have the best, uh, the most effectiveness? musically with the least going on the least amount of notes can you talk about how arrangement of parts is so essential to the music you make in your own music but wolfpack too it just seems so very calculated in the best way 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it definitely is. It's intentional. Um, and with intentionality, you have to arrange things in a way like an orchestrator would arrange, okay, the violins are going to do this thing, which kind of weaves in and out of what these woodwinds are doing. But it also sits underneath this brass thing that's soaring or something like that. You know, orchestrators and arrangers think that way. I think in a rhythm section context, you can have the same amount of attention to detail. And if you don't have it, it just sounds like jamming on a chord. Mm -hmm. It doesn't sound like a song. So very easily, 1612 could just sound like C to F, C to F. And later in the song, it kind of gets there, but only because the rest of the song has set it up to be the thing. And I think when it comes to playing parts and playing arrangements, if everybody understands their role mm -hmm. in the song and in the arrangement and is aware of the roles of everybody else, then it makes sure that everybody's kind of in their own lane going side by side down the freeway. And I think the other side of that, as far as space, that all to me has to do with giving the listener enough to latch on to, but not so much that there's nothing open to interpretation or imagination. Because sometimes what you'll hear is something that's pretty simplistic. You won't realize it, but you'll fill in some of the blanks yourself. And that's kind of fun. And that's how, to me, a lot of people connect with music and connect with songs. Mm -hmm. So if a song could be universal enough lyrically people will apply it to their own situations where the intended message was actually about a parent or a child or something right the listener might interpret it about an uncle or or even a romantic partner or something depending on what the lyrics are you know if it's about love or if it's about loss of love you know that's an, that's an easy one but as far as music is concerned I think it it's okay to to leave certain things open to the listener's interpretation on where some of the subdivision is, where some of the passing notes are and that sort of thing. Really cool. Yeah. Got another group of notes here for you. Here we go. Getting a little little more ambiguous okay. here. <laughs> That is from Joe Satriani's solo in my tune, Massive. How the hell, how, how does somebody have a signature pick scrape? He does. Like, you know that that's yeah, him scraping know, the strings. Yeah, I know. It's really weird. Every time. I don't I know, know how he makes some of those sounds that he makes. It's crazy. <laughs> He's so good. And what a cool dude. I, uh, I had him on the podcast and... Yeah, that's an understatement. He's, you're cool. Everyone I've had on this has, has been so cool. And uh, yeah, I, it's really interesting too. This song, I associate you as more of a clean tone guitar player, which uh -huh. I love. And it was really a, a cool contrast to have literally the exact opposite of a clean tone with Satch yeah. playing. So how, how was the experience working working that out together? Well, I think for me, what I really enjoyed was that I got to just be me and Joe got to be Joe. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like a Satriani thing and it also sounds like a Corey Wong thing. So I still use a clean tone and I still have my pocket guitar thing happening. The thing feels like very much like me, but Joe's thing sounds very much like him. And I don't think that either one of us could do that exact thing without the other. Mm -hmm. Like Joe is a great rhythm player, but he's gonna approach it different than I am. I can play lead stuff, but I'm gonna approach it different than Joe is. And I think that's what's fun about collaboration is that you get potent versions of each other to make one recipe that just kind of, you know, works. I've seen and that's fun. It's it's crazy. Yeah, it's it's awesome. I've seen some Instagram stories of you working in the studio. Is that was this from that, or is there something even further on the horizon? Like how how did you collaborate? Was it all 
overseas. It was all sending files back right. and forth in Dropbox. Yeah. Yeah. But I've seen you also like being the conductor with, with horn players and literally yeah. losing your mind at how sweet it sounds. <laughs> and uh, it just seems like you're having a good time. Yeah. A lot of my, I mean, normally the way that I make my albums is everybody's in the room at once. And sometimes the horn section will overdub later. Yeah. That's actually how I've made a lot of my records is the rhythm section all at once. And then the horn stuff is overdubbed later. Or, or even just written on top of what the rhythm section came up with or what I had in mind for it. And this album that, I'm, that I just finished making, the Striped album, it is pretty much all done remotely. So I made what I thought were pretty good representations of the song in demos, mm-hmm. kind of uh, representing the entire song, bass, drums, guitar, keys, some horn lines, things like that. And I sent it to the different players and they did the real thing on it. And I kind of mixed and matched a lot of that for this album. Rather than being all in the same room, it was all done remotely. Because we can't be in the same room. And many of us, like, a lot of the... I played bass on a lot of it, but a few songs Seth Tackaberry played on, and he lives in London. And, you know, there's people from Phoenix... Nashville, New York, kind of all over the place on the album. San Francisco. Yeah. Cool. One more group of notes for you here. Ready? All right. Come at me. That is from Frogville, but that's the live version. Play it one more time. Oh, wait, no. That's from Starks and Ewing. I have an extended version if you'd like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me the longer version. Oh, sorry. That's from The Optimist. <laughs> oh, I just heard the arpeggio thing in that key. Oh, weird. It is just from The Optimist. I, well, you started on the three major chord, and I thought that it was one. So right. I heard the E... I heard me arpeggiating the E major chord. That's interesting. I didn't hear it that way because that's where I took the sound clip. <laughs> so I knew it was in the middle of the solo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, I heard the tang and the hump, and I heard the E arpeggio. So I figured that was tonic. And then as soon as you let it go, oh, it's going. Yeah, I really like. Uh, I really like that cool. part. I really like that part of the song. Today's episode of Guitar Villains is brought to you by Guitar Super System. Are you tired of YouTube ads telling you that YouTube guitar lessons suck? Me too. I don't know about you, but somebody setting an acoustic guitar on fire or teaching crappy cover songs in front of a musty black curtain feels a little disingenuous to me. I'll get straight to the point. Join tens of thousands of other guitar players and visit guitarsupersystem.com to join the most popular independent guitar learning platform on the internet. If you're a beginner, there's an entire curriculum called the Beginner's Corner just for you. If you're an expert, the music theory and technique curriculums reach the highest levels of mastery and are based on industry standard learning methods I've used since graduating Berklee College of Music. If you're somewhere in the middle, you're actually the perfect candidate. The Choose Your Destiny approach allows you to cater your learning experience to exactly what you want to accomplish, whether that's improving your improvising, ear training, learning new techniques, songwriting, and more. You'll also have access to private live streams, lesson comments, and a community forum for feedback, as well as exclusive giveaways and new curriculum releases. The best part is everything that I just mentioned is included in one monthly subscription and you can cancel anytime or, like a lot of people do, upgrade your subscription to a yearly pass. Of course, you can also just learn guitar right on YouTube for free because YouTube guitar lessons don't suck if you know where to look. So check out guitarsupersystem.com. Now, back to Guitar Villains. It's, it's seen, were you afflicted with the more common obsessions early on of like I was Metallica, Led Zeppelin, Van Halen, or were there were there more? Were, like you seem to have a bit of jazz tendency in your writing and playing. Particularly, I notice what you do uh, in some of your guitar solos. They're a lot more triadic in nature. Sure. Um, am I onto something here? Or am I off? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I didn't get huge into Led Zeppelin for whatever reason. I like their music a lot, but. It, it didn't strike the same with me as a lot of other music. 
and like just my own personal thing. Right. I actually really like Metallica. I, I listened to a lot of Metallica growing up, mm-hmm. and uh, especially in middle school, like learning. Uh, like my my goal in life was to be able to play one note for note. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I learned all... There's three guitar solos in that song. And I learned all three of them slowly, one at a time, and then learning all the other parts, which was fun. I basically just picked my favorite parts of each section. Like, sometimes I played James's part, sometimes I played Kirk's part. Right. Going back and forth. But, um, yeah, I... I listened to a lot of Metallica. Van Halen is insane. I'm still kind of afraid to get into Van Halen because mm-hmm. there's just there's so much depth there. But I love, I love Van Halen. I just haven't done the super, super deep dive yet. But as far as the jazz thing, yeah, like I, there was a several, there were several years where I was wanting to be a jazz cat, right? Just in my brain, you know, not necessarily in my heart, but. That's when kind of things change. When I realized, ah, this stuff is fun, but it's not really me. It's fun because it's challenging to my brain, mm-hmm. but it's not what I absolutely love playing with my heart and soul. So that's when I kind of switched over to playing what I do now. Um, but I did study a lot of jazz guitar in college, and you know, I I transcribed a bunch of Matheny, Schofield, Martino, Wes. You know, I like a lot of that stuff still to this day, but it's not, it doesn't, I, I'm not overtly jazz in what I do. Yeah, overtly is a good term to use because it seems like in the genre of jazz where everything is very refined and proper, you probably can't pull out some of your unbelievable stage moves in that context <laughs> that you can now. Can you explain any of your stage moves? I mean, I could probably describe a few, but maybe you know yours by heart. Well, I think the way that I move on stage is different in this context because I'm trying to elicit an energy and project an energy as part of the entertainment for the audience. And the other thing is with Wolfpack, a lot of times stage moves are a little more exaggerated because when you're on bigger stages, I noticed this from watching watching um, bands play stadiums, arenas, and club shows, whether that be like Lady Gaga did that dive bar tour and then watching her play the Super Bowl or other places. I think there's something to be learned from watching people that, or Usher or Beyonce or whoever, you know, people that are just insane performers Mm -hmm. who have performance coaches and like really craft their performance side of things their movements are enhanced on bigger stages and in bigger audiences. So for me, I think about that and I try to have some awareness of that because for the person to the back half of the room, small motions on stage don't really translate. Mm. And the energy translates a little bit more. Like I was watching Maroon 5 and watching James Valentine move around on the stage. It's like, if you were to move that much in a 500 cap club, it wouldn't, it, it would be a little overkill. Right. But then also for me, as a guitar player, as the lead thing, I'm the one kind of conducting and steering the ship. And since I'm kind of lead rhythm guitar player in a lot of cases, there needs to be that telegraphing of the movement, I yeah. think a little more in my own show. So I'm I'm a little I'm I'm definitely aware of it. I think about it and I'm curious, what do you what's your what's your take on it? Well, you you do this version of the duck walk, which I can only call a modern duck walk. I don't know if you've watched a lot of Angus Young performances, but it's a it's like a, actually it's like a combination between a duck walk and a moonwalk. So it's like this very sl- slight backward shuffle. I don't know if you're aware of this one. You can find it in the live uh, that live show that I mentioned at the top of the pod. Um, but you did that at Madison Square Garden as well. Uh, so that one really kind of stuck out to me. And then of course there's just like the, the lurching toward the ground, which is, it seems like (laughs) lurching. I like that. Kind of like involuntary at some points, which is great. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm down with that. Yeah. I, I get that. You know, I've got, I've got a few different stances where I feel comfortable, too. Yeah, you've mastered the power stance. That's clear. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, a lot, and a lot of times I'm just trying to figure out what's going to translate the part. Right. You know, but, but most of the, uh, honestly, when I'm in the moment, I'm not thinking about it. You know, I'm just kind of doing my thing. But afterwards, I'll watch tape and think, oh, okay. Because I think it's important. You know, you see professional athletes, they analyze. To even high school teams will watch their football games back and see what went right, see what went wrong. Mm-hmm. I don't think musicians do that enough. So sometimes I, I take a listen and I analyze the tape musically, but then I'll also do it on the performance side. Oh, why is this person so boring to watch on stage? It's really an underrated. Or why is this? You know, you know, why why does something work and not? And then I'll shift things around. It's an underrated, like, academic perspective as far as being a great performer and being a successful musician to an extent. Because, like, Black Label Society and King Crimson, think about those two bands watching yeah. them. Zach Wild, when he takes a guitar solo, he has this stance, and it's like oh my, that dude is playing the most insanely difficult thing I've ever seen in my life. And I can tell that because of the way he's standing and what he's doing. And I'm looking at, but then you look at a King Crimson, like frame by frame, for example, and Adrian Ballou is just like standing there playing an equally ridiculous, if not way more complicated thing. And he's just standing there and you, as an audience member, unless you really are tuned into what's happening, you're just like, wow, this sounds cool. Yeah. And I don't know, like, not that either one is right, but it's just sort of like, you know, something for people to consider that, like you said, is, is overlooked maybe. Yeah. And there's something to be said for a certain level of concentration on something. And it doesn't mean that Adrian Ballou is any more effortless than than Zach Wilde. But I think there's something about telegraphing an emotion that's valuable and, Yeah, I, I, I've just been aware of that from the beginning, watching Green Day at Woodstock or watching the Red Hot Chili Peppers performances mm-hmm. versus watching, you know, I used to go down to the local jazz club and it's like, are you guys having fun at all? <laughs> but it is fun. Like, it is fun in our own little, yeah, it's like, in our own heads. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I went through phases where I was like that as well. Yeah. But then what I realize is you don't get to see that person's individual personality as much. And if there's no emotion while they're playing, it's hard to interpret that with our ears when we're watching and listening. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's different when you're listening to an album or when you're listening to Studio Cats. But um, I really do think that people... A lot of people will listen with their eyes to a certain extent, and they'll look for visual cues. Mm-hmm. We, we, we're always looking for messaging. We're always looking for an energy match on a certain level. And if the, if the audio is telling me one thing, but the visual is not telegraphing that, then to me, there's some sort of disconnect. There's something that's not... I'm, I'm confused on how I should feel. And yeah. sometimes I want the performer... Because in, in a live situation, that's what you are. Right. Sometimes I want the performer to give me a little more information. Yeah, makes and sense. It doesn't mean always. But I think if, if, if somebody is conscious of that, it helps the audience to understand how they should feel or, or what kind of response and it's they an- should even feel. It's an especially good message to convey to guitar players because as if you're playing in a band, maybe you're not the front man, like maybe there's a singer or something. So to be able to have that front man mentality and energy as a tool that you can use, I think can project bands to, you know, higher heights than maybe they would have been if it's just like the singer and everyone else kind of standing. Yeah. Totally. So I mentioned you're you're kind of an entrepreneurial whiz. 
<laughs> you you have your your neural DSP uh, Corey Wong plugin. You yeah. you work with Volpec, your solo work, your podcast Wong Notes, uh, and maybe a, even more Stokes in the Fire that I don't know about. Uh, and Misha Mansoor uh, of Periphery, who's also going to be on this show, he's similar in that way in that he has his hand in a lot of different business ventures. So what yeah. what does like a typical day look like for you? And obviously it's a little bit skewed for recent events, but what would you say you spend the most time doing these days with all those different obligations? Yeah. Um- it totally depends <clears throat> on where I'm at within a project or what season I'm in within an album cycle or a touring cycle. But the day-to-day, I mean, I, I'm always scheming. You know, I'm always thinking of things that would be fun, things that I think my fans would enjoy. Yep. And those are the main two things. And anything monetarily that comes from it, it sounds stupid to say but it's kind of that would be a fringe benefit of the whole thing you know like for me i want to have fun doing projects i want to have i want to do something that's going to bring joy to me but i think is also going to bring joy to my, my fans or in the case of the plugin do something that both i want and i feel like i need but also like the guitar world needs yeah you know being an all in one plugin with the best clean tones out there you know so that's what i wanted with the plug-in yes it's an entrepreneurial thing but also it's something that i was just really interested in having so if it was only a money thing i wouldn't have done it you know i i, I mean it's easy to say now but honestly there, there's a lot of things that come up or ideas that i'll have or it's like ah that just sounds like a money-making scheme that doesn't sound not scheme. It sounds like a money-making venture rather than just something that would be fun or something that would bring me joy or good for my fans and that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, I've learned that time is the most valuable commodity these days. Yeah. It's just so much. If if I'm going to spend time doing something, I want the value of my time to be reciprocated. And money and time often don't go hand in hand, especially after you've found some comfortability and security it's like you can choose and it's not to say that money would ever lead like making a signature plug-in or signature anything as a musician is selfishly it's like one of the coolest things and totally. you're not thinking like oh man i hope i sell some of these <laughs> it's just like it's it's for me like it's it's something that you need in your life and you finally get to fulfill that aspiration and the last thing, like, I think that's actually what makes things successful is not thinking about anything but the substance of what it is. Totally. And, yeah, it w- it's fun to sell things with your name on it. But mm-hmm. I think, yeah, that knowing that it's something, you're bringing something of value to the table is cool. Mm-hmm. And that's, even if it's just for yourself, to make something easier for yourself. For me, the plug-in helps me record my guitars and make my albums a lot easier because I have all my tones in one plug-in. And I think it also brings value to other people because it does that exact thing for you. Yeah. I think my favorite part of that plug-in, like obviously immediately you have a clean tone that you can hang your hat on. And yeah. Lots of different options for clean tones, which is, yeah. you know, as a guitar player using I, I use all sorts of different plugins and a lot of them have really really strong offerings in the crunch and overdrive and distortion realms and effects and things very few offer a variety of clean platforms maybe depending on your guitar type or your pickup type or what you're going for so i appreciate that the most and then there's that awesome wah pedal that's that's just really fun yeah, man, that's fun. And the envelope filter. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool, man. I, I mean, it's, thank you for saying that. Uh, it, it really, to me, is super fun. And the drives are awesome. Mm-hmm. Like, I tweaked a, an 808, uh, like, Tube Screamer, yeah. to be the, uh, the tuber. 
And then the big rig overdrive, I kind of tweaked a Klon thing. Uh-huh. I mean, when I say me, I mean with the programmers at Neural DSP because they're geniuses. Yeah, they seem but, like they know what they're doing. Oh, my gosh. They're so good. <laughs> they're so good. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, I want to mention this. And I don't, you've talked about this before, so I don't think this is weird. I feel like we're kind of kindred spirits in a way. Um, I've seen an interview of you when you were 16 you had a temporary blood clot that basically could have killed you at any moment over a period of a couple of weeks while it like cleared itself up. And I, I had open heart surgery when I was 18. So I know this very unique feeling of dread that isn't easy to describe, but obviously you're here. I'm here. We made it, uh, through our life threatening events, but I just wanted to ask you, is it something you've ever returned to as a source of inspiration, like artistically or otherwise? Um, the artistic side a lot of times draws from the personal side. So I think inadvertently it does because that experience, and most of it actually is, so I had a, a TIA, which you don't know what that is, until somebody close to you knows what it is. Right. And it's a transient ischemic attack. It's basically like like a miniature stroke sort of thing. And it happened from a boxing incident. My physique does not suggest it anymore, but I used to be into boxing and grappling. Oh. And, um, yeah. So I, I had an accident with that. And accident meaning I got knocked out. I was a lightweight. He was a heavyweight. Um, <laughs> that sounds, you know, horrifying. we were messing around. We were, we were very close friends, but he, you know, yeah, yeah, it, it was, it was, it was kind of a freak accident to, to a certain extent, but, um, yeah, I think a lot of times when I think back to that, I think about where my mindset was, where it was just like, I'm 16. I just got my driver's license. I got my $500 Dodge Daytona that I saved up my money for buying <laughs> this old crappy car. I used to work a little retail job and I saved up enough money. I actually bought the car from my, my manager at the store. And I was so happy about that. And, you know, there's this freedom of you turn 16, you get a car, you can kind of go anywhere. Right. Granted, I didn't go far, but it was just there's a certain joy and a certain freedom of that that I felt. And it all kind of aligned with, okay, if this is it, I'm just going to have the most fun that I can this summer. This is the summer where I'm going to have the most fun of my entire life. Right. And You're I'm thinking this after you got the news. Yes. Right. It's, like, it's not like I was debilitated. I, I, I was still functional. It was just like my arm would go numb for 15, 20 minutes. Oh. Like I couldn't really move it. It felt it, like it went numb from the bone through the muscle to the skin. I don't know how to describe it. Were it was you like, playing guitar at the time? Or any music? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I, okay. was, I was playing guitar, and uh, I was really intense in like the drumline marching band thing. Oh, okay. But it was the summer, so I wasn't really actively doing a lot. And it, it wasn't like I was playing guitar every day the way that I am now mm-hmm. or that I have been the last 15 years. But... Um, yeah, so it, it, I just wanted to have fun, and my arm would go numb, and that was the thing. It was like, like I'd be driving, or we'd be out hanging out, skateboarding, me and my friends would be like, oh my gosh, the thing's happening again. And my friends would be like, what do you, like, what does it feel like? It was like, uh, it just feels like my bones are numb, and now it feels like, like my muscles are numb. Like I could still kind of move them, Yeah. and then it was like the skin is numb. They're like, we don't believe you. And then they did that snake bite thing on my arm. <laughs> and just like, <laughs> and like, I just couldn't feel anything. They're like, oh my gosh. Uh-huh. And then after what my arm woke up, then it was like, oh my gosh, that kill. You know, finally yeah. the nerves came back and, and it did hurt. But um, there is something to be said for something yeah. crazy like that happening at that age where you maybe like you're, you're just saying, hey, check this out, guys. <laughs> like that sort of 
innocence, I guess you could call it, where I had the same yeah. exact feeling where I was just telling my friends, yeah, I got to get like sawed open. It's going to suck. Anyways, what do you guys want to do later? <laughs> I'd, and, you know, playing playing sports and everything, I was apparently I was I was good at sports, but I learned that I was actually only functioning at like 60 percent of my potential. So I would always brag to yeah. my friends. I'm, I just say, like, I'm actually way better than you if I'm this good <laughs> now. And uh, so it was like a, a, an interesting time, but also maybe the best time because also you had the resilience of youth to recover. And um, I don't know. I just yeah. ha- I, I don't have a lot of people that I meet that also have uh, horrible life threatening things that happened to them at a young age and how they cope with it. It's always interesting to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, it's scary, man. I'm I'm glad to see that you're you're well and I'm glad to be well, obviously. Yeah, we did it. Uh, we did it, dude. <laughs> we came out. We came out of it alive. Yeah. Um so yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I think there's something about a serious event happening in your life where you you have to take a look at a deeper meaning of things. Yeah. And and I have either, used it in my music too. Like I've I've thought about that and been inspired by it in ways and it's it's almost like created music that it never would have come from me otherwise and to bring it back to the guitar world i think what makes you special as a guitarist is your ability to kind of serve the song and play just the right amount which oftentimes is actually not a lot and to me this is something i really admire because most guitar players including myself sometimes have a tendency to fill space, mm-hmm. but you're really good at leaving it. And we talked about this a little bit, but how have you avoided the trope that other guitar players fall into where you just have, were you heavily influenced by a certain style of music? Like you mentioned the drum line, which makes a ton of sense. I don't know how much that influences like the way you play rhythmically. Yeah. Is oh, that a lot? Yeah. Okay. It's like a, a light bulb going on. <laughs> Yeah, that informs my my rhythm and my time feel and the way that I see the grid. Okay. The way that I hear things lining up. Because when you're playing in a snare drum section, there's six of you or seven, three, five, I don't know. It doesn't matter. However many of you playing the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And every time you hit a snare drum, it's a strong transient. The attack is very obvious. Mm-hmm. And if you aren't lining up at the exact same time as everybody else, you get flams. And once you start to get pretty good, then once you get past flam level, you're thinking about milliseconds and you're adjusting to each other in a moment where you need to make it all sound like one huge part rather than six snare drum players playing the same thing. It should just sound like one gigantic thing. And it's just so heightened and enhanced in a snare drum setting, especially because they're tuned so high Mm -hmm. and the stuff needs to be so precise so for me, I took that listening and that attention to detail to the way that I play in a rhythm section in a band. And as far as like the parts and the trope of playing too much, uh, I'm still not Im- I'm not immune to it, and I, I still will oftentimes I-, I have to catch myself every once in a while doing too much on something. Mm-hmm. But again, that level of awareness and listening to everybody around that level of listening to everybody's role and function and how can I fit within that okay then within the role and function how is the drummer treating their subdivision how's the keyboard player treating their subdivision how are the horns treating their subdivision is that different how can we balance this thing out and everybody needs to listen to each other to really get into the thing and as far as the parts thing for me, as a guitar player in the Corey Wong band, it's just like, I'm the band leader. Yeah. I, I'm writing a lot of the songs, or I'm producing this, like, I produced this song. I, I, that's enough for me, or writing the song is a, is a fun thing as well. Playing guitar, that's fun, but it's a bunch of different things, so I get my kicks in different ways, but also, as the producer, or as the band leader, I have to be aware of What's the lead thing in the moment? What needs to be the focal part? And what can I do to contribute and enhance that but not get in the way of it? 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing that most people, not most, that a lot of guitar players are not thinking about when they're overplaying or doing too much. They're not aware of what is the focal part? Why is it the focal part? What range are they in? What's the rhythmic density that they're, they're in? What's their subdivision? How can I enhance what they're doing but not get in the way? I feel like that's uh, that acumen for sonic understanding also comes from your production chops you know sure. thinking about it in that way too but it's a valuable lesson thinking about okay if this were if i were to use an eq pedal on each of these instruments which frequency would i be adjusting and you try yeah. and like attack it from that perspective that's really cool yeah so finally to loop in your guitar supervillain alter ego i have one final question for you what which 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 villain am I? Am I Willy Wonka or am I the Joker? Well, you can choose whichever one you're more comfortable with, but this is more a question of like you you can't be afraid to deliver a hard truth because oftentimes okay. villains they have a point in their own weird twisted way. Sometimes more than others. And like look, you put the candy in your pocket. You missed the bridge. <laughs> like listen back to the pro tool. Like you literally missed the bridge. You can't be mad at me for calling you out on missing the bridge. Uh, all right, go with Willy Wonka. This is great. You're, you're all right, in. Yeah. Okay, so here's the question. What do you believe about guitar that most guitar players would think is crazy? And like I said, this mm-hmm. could be a hard truth guitar players need to hear or something you know that others don't or a misconception about the instrument or whatever you want. What do you believe about the guitar or guitar playing that easy. others might not? Easy. Easy. It is so much more about rhythm than it is about lead. That's that. Done. In the world of rhythm, harmony, and melody, rhythm is king. That's right. That's right. I love it. Corey, as we wind down here, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to be on Guitar Villains today. It's been an honor to chat with you and share some tales. And we'll look forward to seeing what treacherous plots you devise next in your musical endeavors. That's right. You never know what kind of candy I'm going to make that might make you turn into a blueberry. <laughs> <laughs>